You're listening to the Grace Point Northwest podcast. We hope that you will be encouraged and built up in your relationship with Jesus as you hear the preaching and teaching of God's Word. If Grace Point Northwest is not your home church, it is our heart that this podcast will be supplemental and not a substitute to you belonging to a local church in your community. If we can help you get connected to a church in your community, please let us know. And we hope you enjoy this message from our Sunday gathering. All right. Good morning again. My name is Travis. I'm the pastor of preaching theology here at Grace Point Church Northwest. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and open up to John chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like one, as you leave here today, swing by the new here table. We have free Bibles both in English and in Spanish there. Also, it's important for you to know that here at Grace Point Church Northwest, we exist in a collective of independent churches here in Las Vegas. We have one here in Las Vegas right at Peterson. We have another one over in North Las Vegas, and together we live out a common mission, which is to make disciples of Jesus that live in community for the community. And so we're just glad that you guys are here this morning. Now this morning we're going to continue in the book of John, and we've entitled this series, The Book of John That You May Believe. And why is that? It's because John wants you and me to believe in Jesus. You see, in John 20, verse 30, John writes this, Now Jesus did many other things, or many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John tells us why he wrote this book. He doesn't want us to guess. He wrote this book so that you and I may believe in Jesus and have life in his name. And the question I believe John wants to ask us this morning is this, is are you seeing Jesus correctly? Are you seeing him for who he really is? You see, I'm sure I'm not the only one in this room who's found myself in an embarrassing situation or messing out on something because I didn't see something clearly. When we lived in Kentucky, when I was a kid, I was in high school, my parents bought a brand new home on five acres with some woods. And one of the things my dad noticed as we bought this house is some people, when they sell a house, they leave things there they don't really want to take with them, right? And so he goes into the garage and he sees this life-size concrete deer. Now my dad doesn't want to throw it away, so what does he do? He paints it. He makes it look like an actual deer and he sticks it right on the edge of the woods. Well, with that, they invited all our family and friends over for a housewarming party. And there's about 20 to 30 people in the house when my aunt came running in screaming, going, Gary, 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 Gary. And he goes, what? He goes, did you see that beautiful buck on your property? We should shoot it. And I remember looking at my dad going, let her shoot it. That would be awesome. He's like, no, she'll ruin my deer. With that, my, my dad had to tell his sister, you can't shoot that. It's fake. It's concrete. And you can imagine her embarrassment, right? Why? She didn't see it correctly. She didn't see it for what it actually is. I can remember coming home from work one day. It was a Monday, to be a matter of fact, and I decided, hey, I just, I got to go get a burger. And so I looked at my kids. I looked at my wife. I said, here we go. We're going to Red Robin. So we go into Red Robin. It's Monday. We walk through. We see these signs. We see all this stuff. We're not really paying attention. We sit down at the table, and we start to eat when the person who was serving our table said, do you realize you got three kids? If you come in here tomorrow night, they all get to eat for free. I was like, nuh-uh. She goes, look at the signs. And I started to see. They have little things. Kids eat free on what? Tuesday. And we missed out. You see, when we don't see correctly, we could end up embarrassed or we miss out. And in the same way, John is going to tell us today, there are people seeing Jesus. All kinds of people seeing Jesus. Some are seeing him correctly. Some are seeing him incorrectly. And the question is, which one are you? Who are you? So in John 11, verse 45, we read this. Check out what it says. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. 
If you were with us last week, Pastor Nathan told the story, the true story, historical story, of what Jesus did to raise Lazarus from the dead. Now, John tells us that there were many people there who saw Jesus. So many people saw Jesus, but what is their reaction? Some people believed, and some people chose not to believe. Some people put their faith in Jesus. Other people went and tattletailed on Jesus to the religious leaders. But don't miss this. Both groups saw the same exact thing. And what is that? Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. But they have totally different responses to what they saw. We see this all the time. I'm sure I'm not the only person in here who has seen a boxing match or a UFC fight. Clearly seeing that somebody is dominating the fight, right? Only for it to go to the judges and what do they call it? A draw. Or they, they say the, the clear victor is lost. I'm sure I'm not the only one in here who has watched a football game, a basketball game, a soccer game, or some sort of game to see a ref call a foul that was not a foul, or to completely miss a penalty costing somebody a point. And it leads us to ask this question, are we watching the same thing? I mean, are my eyes actually better, better than that referee? In the same way, Jesus clearly raises Lazarus from the dead. There is no question about it. If there was a court case... And Jesus was to say, I'm going to call my best witness, my chief witness. Who could he call? Lazarus, right? Case closed. He was dead yesterday. Now he's alive. Everybody saw it. Both groups saw the miracle. But some see it correctly and believe, and apparently others see it incorrectly and decide to rat Jesus out. But the one thing we see taking place here is that both Jesus' words as well as Jesus' actions do what? Divides the people. It divides the people. And this is nothing really new. Many of us know what this is like. I can remember shortly after coming to faith in Christ, having many of my friends and my family be antagonistic to my faith. I've got an uncle still to this day. Every time I talk to him, he wants to go out on the porch of a family member's house and just debate theology. He will say all the time, I had 15 hours of religious courses in college. None of it's true. You're wasting your time training to be a pastor is what he told me when I was a kid. I would argue we saw the same evidence. We were looking at the same Jesus. We just saw it completely different. And the question you've got to ask yourself is, what about you? One theologian says it like this, there's no amount of evidence that will convince those who have already determined to reject Jesus' claim. And the question is, what about you? Are you dug in deep in your unbelief? Do you not think much of the miracles of Jesus? And why is that? Could it be that you're not seeing them correctly? The miracles of Jesus have come to show us the purpose for which he came. J.D. Greer, who's a pastor in North Carolina, writes in his book, Gaining by Losing. This should be up on the screen. I just love this. He says this, Rather, he, that is Jesus, did things that demonstrated salvation. He healed bodies to show that the gospel can restore what sin has destroyed. He multiplied bread to show that those who feast on him will never be hungry. He walked on water to show that God reigns over chaos and walks on top of judgment for us. He raised the dead to show that he makes all things new. Tim Keller says, Jesus' miracles did not merely show off the naked fact of Jesus' power. They revealed the redemptive purpose of his power. You might remember from a couple weeks ago, messengers come to Jesus. They say, Jesus, the one you love, Lazarus, right? He's dead. And what does Jesus do? He waits. He waits four days. He waits until Lazarus is dead, if you will. And why does he do that? John eleven fourteen. Listen to what it says. Then Jesus told them plain, plainly, Lazarus has died. 
And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may what? Believe. So that you may believe. But let us go to him. So why does Jesus wait? He wants us to see the miracle and he wants us to believe. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead before he dies on the cross to show you and me and everyone we see that he has what? Power over death. And this is not the only resurrection we're going to see in the book of John, but there's one that's even greater that is to come. And whose is that? Jesus's. Jesus will raise from the dead to prove that he has victory over Satan's sin and death. It's come to show, the miracle is to show his redemptive purposes. Now, those who see the miracle, some who see the miracle believe. Others go in tattletales. So check out what happens when, with the tattletale people. Listen to what happens. Verse 47. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. Now, John tells us that the chief priests and the Sadducees join forces against Jesus. Now, this is absolutely astonishing. And the reason for that is because these two groups hated each other. Many of us have heard the old ancient proverb that goes something like this, the enemy of my enemy is my what? Friend. And like, think about it kind of like this. I don't like North Carolina, University of North Carolina. Don't like them. However, when they play a certain team, I cheer for them. Why? Because there's a team I hate even more, and it's called Duke. And so when North Carolina plays Duke, what do I do? I cheer for North Carolina. Why? Because the enemy of my enemy has become my what? My friend. In a similar way, the Pharisees and the chief priests, who are also known as the Sadducees, bitterly hated one another. They had huge theological differences. The Sadducees, or the chief priests, didn't believe in the resurrection, which is why they were Sadducee. And some of you are like, that's cheesy. You'll never forget it. You'll never forget it. It's how I remembered it. They don't believe in the resurrection, so they're Sadducee. Get it? Uh-huh. Okay, anyway. Moving on, what do the Pharisees believe in? The resurrection, right? The Sadducees didn't believe in life after death. The Pharisees did. The Sadducees didn't believe in the spiritual realm. The Pharisees believed in angels and demons. And yet, they both found that they had a what? A duke. They had a common enemy. And so this enemy of my enemy becomes my friend. And so what do these friends do? They convene the Sanhedrin which is the highest judicial body in Israel, made up of the majority of Sadducees and the minority of Pharisees. And what do they do in this meeting? They try to figure out what to do with Jesus. Now, don't miss what this group of religious leaders says. They acknowledge that he is actually performing signs. They acknowledge that he has supernatural powers. They at least see that. However, instead of seeing and trying to figure out what the signs point to, they see the signs and they try to figure out how to get rid of Jesus. These men should know better. They're the religious leaders. They're the most astute spiritual men in all the nation. Many of them for years, if not decades, in religious service, just serving the community. They call the Sanhedrin together, and I imagine they called their meeting together and they opened it up with prayer. And then they probably heard a devotional from the first five books of Moses. Then they went over the past meeting's notes, and then they probably had a robust theological discussion about the resurrection. However, when the topic of Jesus came up, instead of seeing the signs and believing in him and worshiping him, what do they do? They see the signs and they try to silence him. 
What this shows you and me is that you and I can be really religious and still not see Jesus correctly. Think about it. We can be really religious and still not see Jesus correctly. At Grace Point Church Northwest, one of the things we do throughout the week is we meet in smaller groups called community groups. And if you're not in a community group, after the gathering, head to the Connect Here table. We'd love to get you signed up in one because nobody in here should be doing life alone. However, last year, we all did a study in our community groups called Gospel 101. And during that study, we went out into our community and we asked this question, what makes someone a Christian? Now, we asked baristas at Starbucks, cashiers at gas stations. We asked neighbors, family, coworkers, anybody, strangers. And you know what their answers were to that question? The question was, what makes somebody a Christian? You know what they said? Going to church. Helping the poor. Praying. Reading the Bible. Living good and moral lives. Having your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. What, or better yet, who is missing from that question? Jesus. So many people in our city and in our world today believe that Christianity is about what you do rather than about what Jesus has done for you. We people doing religious things all over the place, yet they're doing them to earn that which God has given. And I will argue, if what you are doing, being in church, reading in your Bible, praying, serving, all great things, don't get me wrong, good things, but if you are not doing them out of a faith and trust in Jesus, you are not adding good into your account, you're creating more debt. Because you cannot earn that which God has given. We serve not to get God's grace. We serve out of the overflow of God's grace. Being always precedes doing. You can't get that backwards. That's called religion. And we're going to see what religion does. All of the Christian life is out of being in Christ and out of the love that he has, not trying to earn that which he has given. So why does this religious group want to silence Jesus? Look at verse 48. He says this, if we let, they say this, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. What were the religious leaders afraid of losing? Space and place. They greatly feared seeing Rome come in and destroy their nation, their temple, and take their positions of power. Why? Why is that? It's simply because this, Jesus' miracles were drawing large crowds. People were flocking to Jesus. He had so many people coming towards him that it was creating somewhat of an uprising. And when you are dominated by another nation, they start seeing an uprising, what are they going to do? They're going to squash it. So the religious leaders look at Jesus and they go, wait a second, this doesn't make sense. All these people are flocking to him. They're going to raise up you know, the mighty, powerful arm of Rome, and they're going to come down. They're going to squash us and annihilate us. They don't want us here. But who do the religious leaders immediately begin to look out for when Jesus causes a ruckus? This is what religion does. Who do they start to look out for? The other people? No, they look out for themselves. They have the appearance of having it all together. People looked up to them, and instead of checking to see if they might be missing something about Jesus... They, begin, they immediately start to see Jesus as a threat to their popularity, to their positions, and to their power. And the question is, are you and I really any different? Think about it. 
What are you afraid of seeing lost for the sake of following Jesus? Many people, if we're honest, we're okay seeing Jesus as a savior. When I was 15 years old, before I became a Christian, I said, hey, that's cool. Dad, if you want Jesus to be your savior, I can see that. That's fine. I'm fine with that. But when he got baptized, I heard he was baptized in the name of Jesus, his savior, and his what? His Lord. And many of us, we're okay seeing a Jesus that is a savior, but we do not want a Jesus that will lord over us. Like the religious leaders, we're okay seeing a Jesus who doesn't cause a stir, who doesn't mess with our space and our place. And if you don't believe me, what do you think our Western culture worships more than anything? You don't have to say it out loud, but just think about it for a second. What does our Western culture worship more than anything? I would put it in one single word, comfort. We worship comfort We schedule for comfort. We pay for comfort. We plan for comfort. Yet God never calls us to comfort, does he? It almost seems that God calls us to anything that's uncomfortable. And honestly, I believe this is the the, the biggest idol of our Western culture because when you poke it, people attack. Oh my gosh, if you start saying anything that's uncomfortable, people are like, no, that's not. And they just start like, you poke the bear, you get the bear, right? Right? And when I was moving my family out of state from here to another state to plant a church, I remember people coming up to me, and they would, I I think they had good intentions, but man, it was so hurtful. They would say things like, are you sure you're supposed to go there? Why would God call you there? Think about your kids, Travis, as if I wasn't thinking about my kids. What was coming out of them? Comfort idols. The bear got poked. I remember I was preaching in a youth group, and this father came up to me, and uh, he found me after my message, and he said, hey, you need to quit talking about all that mission stuff, that international mission stuff. I remember looking at him, I go, why? He said, because I'm not paying so much money for my daughter to go get a nursing degree so she can live in poverty and serve a bunch of people. Sad thing is, that guy is now an elder at a church. Why do people say that to me? Because they worship the God of comfort, just like these Pharisees. It was comfortable having the popularity, the power, and the positions. And now Jesus is coming in, and he's messing it all up. Could it be possible that God is calling you out of comfort, calling you to share Jesus with that coworker, that friend, that neighbor, that stranger, maybe that person you don't like? And I promise you, when God puts that on your heart, it will not feel comfortable. It'll come at, honestly, probably the most inconvenient time. This happened to me just a a few weeks ago after uh, uh, doing a funeral for a a Christian man. I swung by Smith's, and I was picking up some groceries. And because I was in a suit, this guy came up to me and said, how are you doing today? And I had the perfect opportunity to say, I'm a pastor. I just did a funeral for a man who loves Jesus. I, I so appreciate doing those funerals because there's a hope there. And it was like, just like share the gospel, right? Like, it's just a perfect moment. My profession is easy. What do you do? I'm a pastor. Let's talk about Jesus, like, right? Like, it's just not, it's not hard. But it was uncomfortable. I wanted to go home. And so you know what I told the man? I'm doing okay. Just heading home from work. I went home, I put the Smith's groceries on the counter, I looked at my wife and I said, ah, I did it again. 
You see, we're not immune to these idols we have in our lives. They're constantly roaring their heads. And what Jesus is constantly trying to do is kill them. And he put me in that situation, I believe, for my good and joy in him. And also to learn something I can share. <laughs> Could it be possible that Jesus is calling you right now out of, out of comfort to change your lifestyle so you can be more available to serve or be generous with money towards the church, missions, and other people? The religious leaders, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, were so comfortable. They saw their positions, their power, their popularity as salvation. And they saw that all Jesus was coming to do is to mess it up. They didn't see him very clearly. So listen to what they do. Verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. I mean, you've got to picture this. The meeting's going on. Sanhedrin's convening. They're debating Jesus. And they're sitting there just going back and forth. And all of a sudden, the high priest, the top dog, if you will, stands up, Caiaphas, and he says, you guys are fools. You know nothing at all. Don't you see what's going on here? Why should we all suffer? Why don't we just kill him? In our Western mentality, we're going, that's terrible. How could they do this? This is religious leaders. But think about his reasoning. Think about his logic and how he tries to justify. What's the most expedient thing to do? Kill Jesus, right? I mean, what's better? Sacrifice one or the whole? Well, obviously, it's the one. Also, by killing Jesus, it will undoubtedly show Rome what? They're for them. There's no uprising happening here. As a matter of fact, when the uprising takes place, guess what? We'll just kill him for you. You don't even have to lift a finger. And the crazy thing is, we're going to see in verse 53, we just heard it read, all the religious leaders buy into this plan. They go, that sounds like a great idea. Let's kill him. Why do they adopt such an idea? It's simple. They see and desire the favor of Caesar more than the favor of God. And what you and I will inevitably do is worship, please, and try to satisfy what it is we most desire. It's so scary to me how often you and I can try to justify things that we know are absolutely wrong. Maybe it's not murder, but we tend to justify lesser things, don't we? We see an action or a decision that's clearly wrong, and we begin to justify it by saying, well, it's, it's not that bad. It's not that bad. I had a rough day, so I deserve to go to Red Robin, Right? Like, not that Red Robin's bad, but you just, you understand, it's like a tough day. You, you deserve this. I've heard people say, if he or she would have just treated me better, I wouldn't have done that. Or how about this one? It doesn't hurt anybody else. And then the one that completely blindsides me sometimes is how many people will say, besides, God just wants me to be happy. How often do you and I talk ourselves into believing God is okay with or even blesses the things that bring him dishonor? We do that all the time, don't we? I mean, I did that this week. It's not so crazy to think that these guys could all of a sudden go from, hey, he's a bother, to murder, and then justify it thinking they're doing the will of God. However, there's some good news, and some of you are like, please give me some good news. <laughs> all right, so let's do it. 51 and 52. He did not say this of his own accord. This is Caiaphas. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one 
the children of God who are scattered abroad. John tells us that Caiaphas prophesied this, but he spoke better than he knew. Why? Because he didn't speak of his own accord. God has an amazing way of using evil intentions for his good purposes. Caiaphas saw that the death of Jesus was an expedient way to do what? To keep his popularity, his power, and his position. However, God saw Jesus' death as a means to save children, children of God from every tribe, tongue, and nation. How do we know this? What does it say in the text? Jesus wouldn't just die for the nation, but rather he would die to gather into one who? The children of God scattered abroad. That's us. That's us. That's you and me and everyone we see that believe in Jesus. You see that word for in verse 51 is so important. It says that Jesus would die for the nations. Yet that little word for implies also in place of. Did Jesus die for you? If you are trusting in him, yes and amen. But it's so much more than that. Jesus also died instead of you on that cross, taking your guilt, your shame, your debt upon himself. Every single year in the Old Testament, there was this day called Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And in Leviticus 16, we read that two goats were taken to the high priest on the day of Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. And the first goat was sacrificed to the Lord the other was released into the wilderness as a scapegoat. Now, the scapegoat pictures what is theologically known as expiation. And some of you are like, what'd you just say to me? Follow, okay? Just hang with me. You can do it, okay? Get your coffee. If you need to go get it, come back, okay? What it symbolizes is expiation. Expiation, that prefix ex means out of or from. That what the high priest would do is on Yom Kippur, he would take his hands, he would lay it on the head of the goat, and he would confess the sins of the people onto that goat. Imputation, the guilt for that sin would go upon that goat, and then somebody would lead that goat where? Out into the wilderness, which is symbolized the removal of sin and guilt from the people. Okay? That's what's going on. But there were two goats on Yom Kippur. You had the scapegoat, but then you had the what? The other goat. And what was the other goat used for? propitiation. And some of you are like, again, another word. Hey, we can say caramel macchiato, right? <laughs> so, so what is propitiation? Think of the prefix there, pro, pro. What does it mean for? That what that goat, what happened to that goat is that it was sacrificed for the sins of the people to pacify the just and righteous wrath of God. That on Yom Kippur, what do you see happening? One goat pays the penalty for the sin, pacifying the just and righteous wrath of God. The other goat is sent out, symbolizing the removal of sin from the people. And people come up to me and they say, why the need for goats and sacrifice? Why can't God just forgive us? Why does he need repayment? Why can't he just sweep it under the rug? However, what those questions are doing is they're grossly misseeing what forgiveness really is. You see, when you and I forgive somebody, somebody always eats the cost. Somebody always eats the cost. With my son, and some of you have heard me kind of explain this before, kind of like this, but if my son is in the backyard juggling a soccer ball, and he decides to miss that juggle and kicks it right through my kitchen window, can I forgive my son? Yeah, but what does that still leave? A broken window. You see, forgiving my son doesn't do away with the bill or dissolve the damage. In order to truly forgive my son, what do I have to do? I have to eat the cost of the window, and I have to pay for it. You might remember in 1 John 1.29, we should have this up on the screen. Listen to what this says. The next day, he, 
saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What is that? Expiation. You can say it. <laughs> okay. He's taken away the sins of the world. And another letter, 1 John 4.10, the Apostle John who wrote this gospel wrote this. What did he say? In this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. What is that propitiation? Who is Jesus? He is the two goats of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. Don't miss this. In Jesus, God is eating the cost of your sin. He's eating the cost of your sin to forgive you so that by believing in his son through his perfect life, death, and resurrection, you could be called his children. And there are really only two types of people in the entire world. There's only two options for each and every one of us. And what is that? Either God can eat the cost of your sin or you can eat the cost of your sin. That's the only options. Caiaphas spoke better than he knew. And God appointed that so that you and I could hear that he has come to eat the cost of your sin. See, nothing will stop these religious leaders. Look at these last two verses. It says this in 53 and 54. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. The religious leaders want Jesus dead. And what the rest of the book is going to show us is that from this point forward, Jesus is going to die, but he's going to die on his terms, not their terms. It's almost as if when we get to chapter 13, you will see Jesus' eyes change. They'll focus from here to a cross, and he will relentlessly go to that cross to where he will eat the sin for all those who trust in him. And that's what's going on. So what do you see? What do you see? All the miracles of Jesus point to the greater works he has come to do. And what is that? To die on a cross, to rise again, to give us forgiveness. You see, Jesus came to save those who are seeing him incorrectly, who are stuck in their unbelief. Jesus has come to save those who use him as nothing more than a ticket to get what they want, if you will. Jesus has come to save those who grossly misunderstand forgiveness by showing them true forgiveness. And the question is, what do you see? What do you see? And will you go to him? Will you rest in him? Will you find joy in him? Let's pray.